Once again, welcome here to City Life. It was just last week we were welcoming the youth back from camp. They spent a week up in Pennsylvania uh, being poured into with ministry, pursuing God with about 100 plus other youth up there in Pennsylvania. So we welcomed them back last week. And then uh, David, the youth pastor, reached out to me. He's like, we got some people that can share. I was like, absolutely, right? I used to go to those camps. I kind of miss it. Kind of, right? I don't miss the lack of sleep. You know, I don't miss the craziness. But I want to hear about it. And I wanted to give Hannah and Watney an opportunity to share because she wanted to share about what God did at camp. So can you give her a big round of applause as she comes up to, to share? All right. So this year at camp, I decided that um, I didn't want to bring my list of things that I was expecting for God to do in my life, things that I was asking for, healing in my life, because I just kind of felt like I kept being let down by my own expectations. Um, So there was this altar call for baptism of the Holy Spirit, Um, and I've been praying and asking God for that for a while. Um, So I I kind of felt like it wasn't my time, though. So um, I go up there, and, you know, I'm just, I'm kind of waiting for someone to come and pray with me. Um, And then my youth pastor comes up, and he starts praying over me for anxiety. And I was like, this is kind of odd because this is not what I came here for. Um, And this is one of the things that I've been asking God for healing for over my life. Um, And um, so the sermon the night before, we were actually talking about how David and, and Goliath, like with his weapon and his slingshot and stuff like that, and how it's your slingshot is like, like defeats your giants in your life, and then you get the next weapon for your next battle, for your next giant, you know. Um, and he was talking to me. He was like, I feel like your weapon that God is telling me is going to be praise, and you're going to defeat your anxiety. Um, and so I was like, well, I mean, okay, like I didn't really get it, you know. So I'd recap. He was just talking to me about um, how it means like to be thankful, you know, to show your praise even in moments where, like, you don't know what to be thankful for. You know, you're so clouded by your own feelings and stuff. And that was, it was kind of hard for me to hear because I was going through a huge season of just doubt in my life. And at that point, I didn't even think that, like, like I, I kind of knew God was real, but it was just like, you know, anxiety kind of makes you, like, it swarms your thoughts. And you're like, well, you know, I don't even know what I believe anymore, you know. So um, to hear that, like, you know, God is real, and he's present, and he hears this in your life, and he wants to heal you through something that, like, you know, like, praising him, which is crazy, so um, I, like, went home, and I was, like, I felt like I was kind of instantly challenged, you know, and I just wasn't feeling the best, and I was kind of, like, you know, starting, I, I came home, and I was, like, well, camp was great, but now I feel awful, you know, I kind of feel, like, lost, and I kind of feel confused, And then I heard God, and I heard him say, like, now you praise, you know. Now you're thankful, now you praise, now you show him. So I just, like, you know, I started to praise God, and it was, like, for the first time in a long time, I realized that God had cut my veil of doubt over my life. And I could feel him again, you know. Like, I could hear what he was telling me. Before, I was so swarmed with anxiety in my thoughts that I I didn't know what could be God, what what is God telling me because I hear all these other voices from all these other people in my head. And for the first time, I heard God clearly, you know. And I feel like I feel so changed by that, you know. I feel like I'm renewed in, our, in my faith, which is exactly what the theme was for our camp. 
you know, so that was just, it was just crazy to see that even if you, like, aren't faithful, and, like, you don't have faith, or you're doubting, like, God is still faithful, you know, so. That's so good. And it's so good because it's relatable for all of us. You don't have to spend years in youth ministry to realize that youth don't just deal with JV problems, right? They, they, re, they walk through seasons just like we do. And in the same way, we as a church don't think that there's a JV calling on our youth, right? I don't know. There's no JV calling. Once you're saved, you're called, right? So I don't know if it's to you, it's age, if it's how long you've been saved, how much knowledge you think you have. There's no JV. You're on the team, right? And God wants to use you. God wants to speak to you. God wants to heal you. God wants to use you. And uh, we do believe in our youth, and we're excited about our youth. And I actually wanted to, can I call the Lees up as well, Emily and Tyler, because uh, we'll start announcing it formally soon, but I believe it's September 27th is the, f- yep, uh, yep, so the, they're going to on Fridays once a month start hosting our youth here on this side of the water. It'll be RC Southside, all right, so the Southsiders, right? And what's crazy is they were in youth ministry with Steph and I for years, and when we moved down here to the south side, uh, they, they joined this church, right? And they haven't been in youth ministry. And it's funny because for Steph and I, that grace was lifted, right? Like, I'm not itching to get back into youth ministry. I don't have that passion. I don't want to hang out with a bunch of middle schoolers all the time. But that never left them. There's a calling, a purpose, a ministry in their lives. So come on, let's rally around them. Let's cheer for them. But I just wanted tonight to lay hands and pray for them. Uh, and for the ministry that they're going to be starting, because that's going to be huge for the church, uh, to have something where our students can walk in community. Community is not just important for us, right? The adults, right? Community is important for everybody who's following Christ. Community, life groups, doing life together, having relationships, people that can challenge you, encourage you. So they're going to be providing that for our youth here on the south side. So can you extend your hands? Can we pray for them right now? Holy Spirit, we thank you. God, for the giftings and callings that are on their life. God, and I pray just that your Holy Spirit would release even more passion. God, your Holy Spirit would release even more vision in their lives, Lord God, more grace. They're not just uh, a couple. They have kids of their own, Lord God. They have uh, concerns and callings uh, at home, God. But we thank you that you've given them a heart, not just for their kids, but for our kids, Lord God, for our youth. And I pray that you would continue to anoint them, Lord God. Continue to give them an instructed tongue to speak to that generation. God, to speak to them in ways that your Holy Spirit can use to to grow them and remind them that they're not JV. God, they're called right where they're at in their schools. They're called right where they're at in their sports teams and neighborhoods, Lord God. And I pray that your kingdom will be built. Jesus Christ will be glorified. And students will come to know you in this region through their work and our youth together with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, guys. So we'll start formally announcing that uh, in the weeks to come. Again, it's the end of September, but we wanted to let you guys know and just lay hands on them and pray for them. Um, But, yeah, (laughs) we love our students. I I don't keep in touch with many of my high school friends. Uh, It was a long time ago up in the D.C. area when I was in high school, and I used to tell the students all the time in the youth ministry, because it's my testimony, don't make compromises with long-term consequences for short-term acquaintances. <laughs> and uh, I don't talk to a lot of my high school friends, but I do 
I have a, a message go ongoing with a lot of my college buddies. Uh, it's in the WhatsApp app, and it's a bunch of us. And, and I can't lie about probably 80% of it is sports-related uh, talk and conversation. But we, we sometimes uh, talk about movies, and often, maybe because we're William Mary grads and we're a little bit of nerds, we talk about books, right? Uh, we talk about our, our, our top favorite books. Anybody have, like, read enough books where you're like, I have a top three? Like, these are my favorite books, right? That's me. My top three are probably Lord of the Rings. <laughs> I reread Lord of the Rings right after our plant. And I think I used a quote like every week for a while. People were just mocking me. But uh, <laughs> that's one of them. Uh, the book Silence. It's about Japanese missionaries in like the 16th century. I'll recommend it. It's amazing. And then Dune. It's a sci-fi novel. Uh, the, I think, best-selling sci-fi novel ever. But what we were talking about in the, in the messaging this week is they're, they're making a, a film adaptation of it. And yes, I know there was one in the 80s, but it was so bad I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> and uh, and there, I have hope for it because the producer who's producing it has produced some really good movies. And uh, his most recent one was a couple years ago, I think. It was called Arrival. It was about an alien ship that arrives, but the focus of the movie was on linguistics, which is the study of language, because they're trying to communicate with this this vessel that had arrived, and they're trying to figure out how on earth do we communicate with this species? How do we talk to them? How do we communicate with them? And it made being a linguist look really cool. Like, you're like, that might actually be a cool job. Kind of the same way when I was a, a, a kid, Indiana Jones made being an archaeologist look really cool. Like, it was Sherlock Holmes mixed with a little Batman. This guy's going on adventures. And so when I was in college, like, if you want to go towards linguistics or archaeology, you'll take anthropology 101. After about two weeks of that class, I realized I made an enormous mistake. <laughs> Reading about different pottery and different cultures, how to lay out a grid and how to organize dirt, and I was like, this was a mistake. <laughs> Not as cool as it looks in the movies, but I was an English major, and uh, some linguistics interests me. Maybe it's only me, so I won't bore you long, but there's something called linguistic relativity, where the language you speak, it affects your worldview. And we talked about this when we opened this series some weeks ago, right? We talked about how the Hebrew authors of Scripture saw the Hebrew language and see the Hebrew language as, as pretty pliable. It's still changing, and that should affect the way we read Scripture, we also talked about during that introductory sermon how in the English language, when we're talking about where things are laid out, like that's to the left of that or that's above that, because of that, when I ask you, well, what direction is southeast? Like, I don't know. Is there an app for that? Right? <laughs> you start thinking about where the sun is setting. You're doing math in your head. Whereas other languages like the, the Aborigines, in their language, they don't say left, right, over, under. They say, well, my fork is to the east of my plate. Or my car is parked to the southwest of the house. So you could ask a child, a, a grade school age kid, what direction is southeast? And they'll be like, that way. Because the language, the way they, they even talk about the world, it affects their worldview. That's linguistic relativity. But then there's a, another level above that called linguistic determinism, which goes a step further. That language affects how we even experience reality. That language can alter reality. So the movie Arrival goes this route when most linguistic professors and such would tell you it's not quite that formative. But when you read scripture, you realize that words do affect your life. The way you talk 
affects your life. You read in Proverbs, we've been hitting on this verse again and again in this series, it's Proverbs 18.21 where it says, words can bring death or life. And we so often make this about the totality of our conversations or our arguments or the ideas we talk about, but what about each and every word? And when words start to fade from our vocabulary or words get shallow definitions, that can actually hurt our faith, can hurt our belief. We've looked at how. Surveys have shown there's been this massive dip in the use of religious vocabulary in the past century that has coincided with really just a decay in belief within the church in our culture, in our American culture. And the point we've got to is this, that the definition of our words, it can make a world of a difference. And what we've done in this series is we've looked at words that we use again and again and again in the church. And sometimes we never pause to think, well, what does that really mean? Like we live in an echo chamber, and what if somebody just asked you in Starbucks, well, what is salvation? What is the gospel? What is worship? How would you define those words? And we've looked at other words that we don't really even talk about or use anymore. Like last week, we looked at the word lament, which we don't preach on very often or talk about very often, but that informs how we consider our prayer life and how we look at prayer. And tonight, I want to look at uh, the word liturgy and how that affects our worship. Because worship can have a dangerously shallow definition sometimes in the church and our culture. And liturgy is a word that we often don't use anymore. But to preface all this, I want to read from Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. It's a pretty famous passage about worship in the New Testament. I want to read the New Living Translation, and then I want to read it in the Message Version. But I'm going to read from the New Living. It says in Romans 12, verse 1, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you, to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. And again, I want to read a a portion of that in the message version. Where verse 1 reads, so here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Again, Paul in the New Living says, this is truly the way to worship him. And I love the book of Romans. It's kind of got a soft spot for me because the day after I got saved, for whatever reason, I picked up my Bible and I was like, what do I read? I started reading Romans. Romans is deep. (laughs) Romans has a well-deserved reputation uh, for being a deeply theological book. But as Paul comes up from this deep theological dive that he's taken in the first 11 chapters of Romans, we see in Romans 12 that he begins to get practical. But I love what the commentary I was studying this week says about this beginning of Romans 12. And it reminds us, and I quote, that all theology is practical. And all practice, if it is truly Christian, is theological. The point that he's making is the good news of Jesus Christ is supposed to impact our lives from the ground up, starting now, moment by moment, owned and lived out in every detail of our lives and every habit. And there's a a book that I read recently called The Common Rule. It's by a guy named Justin Early, and I, I, I recommend it. And it's really good because it's about lining up our habits with our beliefs. It's about lining up the practical with the theological. Because the trap we so often walk in 
as believers is we try to compartmentalize the two. But I love the first 17 pages of this book, basically inspired tonight, his introduction. And in it, he states that we are all living according to a specific regimen of habits, and those habits shape most of our lives. He defines a habit as something we do automatically, subconsciously, over and over. And he quotes a study from Duke that showed 40% of our actions each and every day, they're not so much a, a product of our choices as they are our habits, just what we do, our daily rituals. And in this introduction, he has a powerful quote, which again inspired tonight, where he says, liturgy is a pattern of words or actions repeated regularly as a way of worship. The goal of liturgy is for the participant to be formed in a certain way. Habits and liturgy are both something repeated over and over which forms you. The only difference is that liturgy admits it is an act of worship. His implication, of course, is our habits don't, just kind of under the surface. Now, for here in this book, for the next 150 pages or so, he, he digs into eight habits that he's adopted in his life that encourages us, as we see in Romans 12, to be transformed rather than conformed. Because if we don't have habits, if we don't pursue God, we're just going to conform to the world. We're going to worship something, which we'll look at tonight. We don't have time in our 30-minute window to do justice to all those habits, but I actually would recommend, some of you guys were there, the week we had to cancel because we had no AC, David was in Newport News, and he also read this book while I was reading it and preached a sermon on, what's it called, force of habit and the power of habits. But tonight, I want to take this lens of liturgy, the word liturgy, and really look at our worship. What is worship? But before I do that, Mark, Laura, you both raise your hands and you like to read a lot, so... I have copies of the book as well. <laughs> there you go, Mark. But I do recommend that book because we're not going to dive deep into habits. But if you're like, man, let me think deeper on habits, read that book. Uh, go podcast David's sermon. But again, the lens of liturgy tonight, it'll help inform our worship. For some of us, it might transform our worship. Because liturgy is a word that we don't use much anymore. When I say the word liturgy, what do you think of? Right, kneeling and standing and kneeling. The Apostles' Creed. If you Google, I did this just to see, like, what, is, what pulls up. If you Google image search liturgy, it's the inside of a lot of cathedrals with a lot of candles, a lot of incense, right? You just see it in the air and a whole lot of robes, right? That's what, if you Google search liturgy, and yeah, that's probably a mass where you're doing a lot of standing and kneeling and standing and kneeling, and that's what you find when you look up the word liturgy. But what's the definition of liturgy? The definition of liturgy in the dictionary is the ritual or script for various forms of public worship in churches. Now, I got those three words underlined because that's where I want to focus tonight. Public worship, ritual, script, those three areas. Because we often think about worship as what? What we're doing right now. What we're doing right here in this space. Public worship in churches. And our service as a church on the weekend or the 90 minutes you spend, whether it's a Saturday night or a Sunday morning, people actually do that, right? I'm preaching at a church tomorrow morning. I got to wake up early to look at my sermon, right? Drink all kinds of coffee just to be awake and not wiped on a Sunday. People do that, right? But the 90 minutes on a weekend, and there's power in that. Right? You look at scripture, there's power where two or more are gathered, how God shows up, that he's glorified in a special way in public worship. Jesus is said to manifest himself in and through his church, right? Public worship, you look at it, it's what resembles 
heaven. There's so much value in public worship. Coming together as the body to worship together. Whether it's singing, digging into God's word, mutually encouraging one another. So don't take anything I say tonight as disparaging public worship. Right? But when that and that alone is the extent of our definition of worship, worship can become an awkwardly inserted moment of sentiment and devotion before we walk back out those doors to an unsentimental, no-nonsense life. But what about our personal worship? What about our, our private worship? Now, our, our relationship with God is, is personal but not private, but have you ever given thought to what about my, my worship, my personal worship? Or does your definition of worship just include these moments like tonight? What about your Romans 12 Worship, right? Offering your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life to God. What about that worship? Because Paul says it plain. This is truly the way to worship him, which means that worship isn't just about what you do on the weekend. It's how you live your life. It's worship. Offering up your life in its entirety, not just some compartment, not just one part of your life, but all of your life to God. That's worship. I think one of the greatest temptations that the church falls into and we buy into again and again is to divorce the spiritual from the day-to-day, the spiritual from the material world. And when we buy into this temptation, the enemy gets us to compartmentalize our spirituality. So it doesn't touch anything outside those doors, and it certainly doesn't touch anyone outside those doors, and he's happy with that. We see throughout Scripture, though, especially in the Old Testament, talking to Greg about the prophet Amos this morning and different prophets as he's been reading through the Old Testament, we see again and again and again in the Old Testament that prophets would remind God's people that our public worship carries little meaning if there's not a personal worship to go along with it that affects our behavior, our interactions with other people, our habits. I think it's Isaiah 58 where he challenges them on their fasting. He's like, yeah, you're fasting, but look at your life. It's a mess. That's the juice version. You can read it yourself. It's a a powerful chapter. But if you're talking about your personal worship, right, what's the structure? What's the liturgy for that? Is there a a ritual? Is there a script for that? What does that look like? And I want to, again, look at our worship tonight through the lens of liturgy. And I want to do that by considering the two parts of its definition, ritual and script. And ritual is the first, and maybe you're like, ritual, right? That's a, that's a dirty word. That's bad, right? Because when you think of ritual, you might think of verses like, again, in Isaiah, where he's challenging God's people. He says in Isaiah 29, verse 13, which was quoted by Jesus, these people say they are mine. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And their worship of me is nothing but man-made rules learned by rote. Basically saying it's nothing but rote routine. It's nothing but ritual. But rituals aren't problematic in and of themselves. Rote routines, empty rituals are, but what about meaningful, rich rituals which point us back to Jesus? You know, we're going to end service tonight with communion, which is this ritual. It's this, it's this, this practice we do in worship to remember Jesus. It points us back to Jesus. Jesus told us to never stop doing it. Why? So we remember. Remember what? That Jesus' work on the cross, his body and blood, the gospel of Jesus Christ is that it earned our salvation. It paid our debts. There's nothing we can do. There's nothing we could ever do that would make us right with God, but we don't have to because Jesus did it through his body and his blood on the cross. 
that he died and then he rose from the grave, and we have peace and reconciliation with God through that and nothing else. That's the gospel. And I think that's why sometimes when you talk about focusing on habits, right, things that you do, focusing on the formation of habits and discipline, to some people it screams of legalism, and they'll, they'll push back because nothing we do can save us. And that's true, right? If, if we were implementing habits to be justified before God or to earn his love or to balance the scales in, in our favor, right, that would be legalism, and that would be unbiblical, But we also have to recognize in Scripture this call to sanctification. There's justification, which is positional, and sanctification, which is this process of looking more like Jesus Christ daily, being transformed by the renewing of our mind, as it talks about in Romans 12. And with that, habits and discipline, they're necessary. They're non-negotiable. You read Romans 12, verses 1 through 2 in the Amplified Version. It says, don't conform, but be transformed and progressively changed by the renewing of your mind. And it adds in this phrase progressively change because renewing of your mind, that's in the progressive tense. It's just making sure you catch that, that hey, the renewing of your mind is a process. It's a journey of sanctification. The very fact that Paul is calling believers to a process is proof that it doesn't just automatically happen when we get saved. There's a new grid There's a new perspective you have and you think from when you start a relationship with Jesus Christ. But transforming your mind takes time. I did all kinds of damage to the way I thought. And even my brain itself with all kinds of things as a teenager and into my 20s. Right? That didn't just poof, be transformed the moment I gave my life to Christ. I think sometimes we want the Disney transformation where we lift it off the ground and we're spun around and then we come back down. It's like, all right, I'm good. No, we're called to a process. And there's work and sweat equity that we put in. Yes, there's grace. Yes, we're justified. But we're also called to grow. We've got to grow. And that takes habits. Right? We worship Jesus, so we work on our habits, because we worship through our habits. You've probably heard preachers or teachers say everybody worships something. Right? We all worship something. You've probably heard that in a church service, read it in a book. But, you know, there was a a secular author, David Foster Wallace, who spoke in a commencement commencement speech in 2005 to uh, the graduating class at Kenyon College. So this guy doesn't believe in Jesus, and you could tell from his quote, but what he said was powerful. He said, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, they are where you tap into real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you'll end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Then he closed by saying, but the insidious thing about these forms of worship is they're unconscious. They're default settings. You know what gives this, these words ominous weight is he talks about how worshiping anything outside of God will eat you alive. And he took his life not long after giving this speech. What he said, though, is true. And it echoes reality in what we see in Scripture. We were created to worship. 
We were wired to worship. He called it our default setting. Like Justin Early talks about in his book, so much of it is unconscious. So how do you know what you worship? Check your habits. We all have rituals, right? We all have routines that we repeat throughout the day. And so often, like that study at Duke shows, they're just unconscious, right? But they're scripts that we act from. And just like liturgy informs our worship and shapes our worship, like Justin Early says in his books, our habits worship beneath the surface, we just don't call it that. We just don't call it worship. We have to recognize our habits are little liturgies. They're rituals that form us. Liturgies are for formation, and and our habits form us, shape us, and they shape how we worship and what we worship. You know, as I was studying for this, and I was reminded of a book I read a long time ago, Gulliver's Travels. Anybody ever read it? Maybe you saw the Jack Black movie. Maybe you saw, it was a Ted Danson miniseries when I was like a little kid in the 90s. If you haven't seen either, don't worry about it. They weren't good. Uh, (laughs) But the book is a classic. And uh, so Gulliver, I can't remember that's his name. I'm assuming that's his name. Gulliver, right, washes up into the, the, this area filled with what are called Lilliputians, right, little people. I don't know if they were little or he was huge. We don't really know. But he shows up kind of like the alien in Arrival, and they're trying to figure out who is this guy, what's he all about. And it says in the book that he kept checking his watch. Like that was just a habit he had. So they deduced that that was his God. That must be what he worships because he keeps going to it, right? That's, uh, that was his ritual, that he would keep checking his watch. Like, he must, he must worship that thing. And that for Swift was a commentary on his culture's emphasis on efficiency, which we could still relate to today, but it's also an indirect commentary on our habits, right? Our routines, our rituals, they're a little liturgy, and whether we realize it or not, it affects our worship. And most of us don't carry watches anymore. I used to wear a wristwatch till I got a cell phone, right, because that has the time on it. So I don't have to check a watch anymore. So what do we do instead? Check our phone all the time. You know, the, the one time I probably use the word ritual normally is talking about, like, the morning ritual, what you do when you first get out of bed, right? And it's a private moment. You're vulnerable and impressionable. Those are formative moments of our day, those things you do when you're first rolling out of bed. It's those moments where you can either conform or be transformed if you're looking at Romans 12. I, I read so many studies. I couldn't find it. I looked so hard. There was a study that showed, like, half of America, the first thing they do in the morning is check their email. Because most of us, our alarms are going off on our phone, so you're on your phone. You see the red notifications. Let me check my email, make sure I'm good with work. Others of us, the first thing we do is we check the news. Others of us, the first thing we check is whatever randomness is on our social media feeds. We have this impulse when we wake up to reach out and see what we missed. And I'm not immune, and I hate it. And that's why I have this setting. I can't remember what it is on my phone where I can't check anything until after 8 o'clock. And I'm not alone, though, in that impulse. There were 8,000 Christians surveyed, and 75% say they check their cell phone before any kind of devotionals. Any kind of devotionals. And then on average, not just believers, all of America, we check our phones an average of every four minutes every day every four minutes of our waking lives, right? And while these impulses, they strike me as annoying and frustrating, so I try to find ways to get around them, I often fail to realize that they're also more than that, right? They're deeply formative, right? And I I hate the, the apps and the social media that invade my habits, but I often don't think, oh, this is actually invading how I worship. 
and what I worship. But you know, eventually, we have to break from our social media, go out the door. Maybe, maybe you leave the house to go to work. Maybe you're at home, right, raising your children, doing all kinds of work at home. That's a full-time gig. But we've long bought the lie that gathering as a body for preaching and prayer and praise is real worship and the daily grind is inferior, something else altogether. You know, sometimes the daily grind feels like the parts of a movie that weren't included, right? In movies, you're not watching them wash the ditches, not watching them mow the lawn, budget, sit in 90-minute meetings that you even want to be in. They don't show all that in the movies. Sometimes our life feels like that, paying bills, napping, though I like that part, right? But I think we often forget that Jesus spent the first 30 years of his life in relative obscurity as a carpenter, just working with his hands, wasn't famous, wasn't heralded, and yet this seemingly obscure daily grind for Jesus is a part of our redemption story. It's a part of our redemption. And our seemingly obscure daily grind is also an important part of our redemption and our being shaped. Because like sculptures that are cut and grinded out of stone, the daily grind shapes us. And all the little liturgies within it, they form us. We have rituals of of personal, private worship, morning rituals, afternoon rituals, bedtime rituals, things we do again and again. And all of this is part of our Romans 12 worship. And the lens of liturgy helps us see these moment-by-moment rituals that we repeat, they, they shape us. They either help us to conform or be transformed. And when we zoom into each moment of our life, each moment is a part of us laying our life before God as an offering. We often consider worship as having to do more with our affections than our disciplines. But our daily moment-by-moment disciplines show us what our affections truly are. They shape what our affections truly are. And when we zoom in, you begin to realize that all of this shapes how and what I'm worshiping. But when you zoom out, put on the wide-angle lens, right, you begin to look at the script. When we take another look at linguistic relativity, right, we speak the English language. At least for most of us, that's our first language. And the English language has a very linear view of time, right, made up of individually packaged days, hours, and minutes that march along from the past to the future. And it gives us this illusion that time is like blocks on a calendar, like that picture there that we feel we can tame, we feel we can control. And our security becomes not based on God, but how we can manage all those packaged hours, days, and weeks. But you know, other languages, like some Native American languages, for instance, they have a more cyclical notion that days aren't so much separate things, but day is something that comes and goes, which kind of makes sense, right? We're not getting a new sun every day, but the sun is something that comes and goes. They're experiencing to them one day that comes and goes, and comes, and goes. Now, it's the last time I'll mention the movie Arrival, but in that movie, the language is expressed in circles. Their language is circular and cyclical, which allowed them in the movie to see past, present, and future as a big cycle that they could zoom out and see from the outside of the moment. You know, as English speakers, we can compartmentalize our days and our life and forget that all of it is a part of one bigger story. It's all one bigger story, and it doesn't revolve around us, which is what we like to do when we mark the boxes on the calendar. It revolves around Jesus. You see, the problem isn't that some of our day-to-day habits waste time, but our habits also frame time. 
It informs the narrative we see life with, the script we operate from. It affects our worldview. You know, I think I shared this shortly after the, the first one came out, and maybe it's fitting since the third or ninth, however you want to count them, is about to come out. But the, the Star Wars Force Awakens, there were all these actors, all these actresses that lined up to play roles that were like behind the scenes, little to no recognition or credit for them. They just wanted to be in the movie. And the most notable one was Daniel Craig, right? James Bond, who had been in some 40 movies before Star Wars, but he walked up to the director and he said, you know, I just want, and I quote, some sort of cameo role. And he ended up wearing, I think, like a stormtrooper outfit. And you would have never known that he was even in the movie except somebody had loose lips and told somebody, hey, that was Daniel Craig in that scene. But to him, it wasn't about getting recognition. It was entirely anonymous. And why would he do this, right? This prominent A-list actor. And the most likely explanation for him and all those people that volunteer for all these obscure roles is that Star Wars is such a huge story in film history that they simply wanted to step into a role, even if it wasn't a starring one. Their perspective was it's about the bigger story, not me. I'm just honored if I get to be a part of something so iconic. Then you got to ask the question, why do we love stories like Star Wars so much? It's been around for 40 plus years and we keep making movies, right? We love the story. Well, we love stories like that one and other ones in books and movies because we were created to live in one, right? We aren't just meant to watch and read stories. We're created to live in a story. We desire meaning. We desire purpose. And we find that in the gospel. We find that in the story of Jesus Christ in the Bible, that it informs who we are, the story we're in, who the hero is, how we're saved, what we're saved from. It's the most epic narrative of all time, and it's still being unfolded in real time. We're living in it, this story. And it begins as God creates in Genesis and in the next book, Exodus, and into Leviticus, he begins to ordain what are really liturgies, rituals and practices for worship. And all of these pointed to Jesus. The prophets would correct it like we talked about when it went off the rails, but then you keep reading the Bible, Jesus comes and fulfills all these liturgies that pointed to him. So I think sometimes we think, well, Jesus came, he died on the cross, we have salvation now, so we can just get rid of all the rituals, all the structure. We don't need it anymore. But to let go of the script that informs our worship is to lose the plot. And to lose the plot is to let go of our formation, our transformation that we see we're supposed to be walking in in Romans 12 where it says, don't conform to the patterns of this world. You know, when you read that, Maybe isolated, it sounds very ethereal and poetic and deeply spiritual, but it's intensely practical and applicable in our culture. Because you're taking in a liturgy and it's script daily. These liturgies, like all little liturgies, they, they shape us. We're either conforming or we're transforming. And we conform when we passively sit back and let the world's stories, narratives, and scripts just wash over us. And we lose the plot. It's not just stories in books or movies. No, it's the, the stories in the news that reek of division and shout the sky is falling. Stories in advertising. Like there are liturgies in advertising, consumerism. You'll be happy if you just get the newest version. You'll be happy if you just accumulate enough. Also in advertising, you see hedonism, right? Life is about maximizing your pleasure. Do whatever makes you happy. Follow your feelings. These are all different liturgies, scripts that the world is giving us. We can either conform to them or be transformed. And that's why it's scary 
this fact we've mentioned again and again and again that 80% of Christians don't read their Bible outside of church because they're all operating according to a script, a liturgy. And so if you're not in Scripture, it's not going to be the, the script in Scripture. But did you know the church has its own calendar? Some of y'all are like, duh, <laughs> right? When I was 21, I found that out. I had no idea. I didn't know what a liturgical calendar was, right, that the church has its own calendar. For me, I found rhythm in academics, right? School gives your year a structure, uh, holidays, the consumerism of the holidays gives your year a structure. I love sports, so seasons within sports would define my seasons. But you know what those lack? Meaning, <laughs> purpose. The liturgical calendar is structured around the seasons of Advent, the Epiphany, Lent, Easter, and Pentecost. And each of those seasons lasts for some weeks before going into the next one. This kind of pace is counter to our culture where we rush from celebration to celebration, holiday to holiday. You could probably buy a Christmas tree in Walmart right now, right? And we never pause to find the purpose or meaning in it, which leaves us empty and hungover instead of filled and fulfilled. But the liturgical calendar teaches us to embrace this liturgy of patience and longing and hope and to seek meaning in every moment and every season and every year in Jesus Christ. And I don't share that because there's any power in the calendar, but there's power in what it points to, which is the truth of Scripture, which is Jesus Christ. It provides us with a new script, one that is about the hope we have in Jesus Christ. If you realize you need to change your script and your day-to-day -day liturgy, turn to Scripture. That's what this calendar points to. Go to Scripture before you go to your social media feed that feeds you a script of comparison. Go to Scripture before advertisements feed you a, a script of consumerism rather than the script we see in Scripture where we're not just consumers, we're creators and co-laborers with Christ. Right, again, or cable news feeds you the script of division when Scripture feeds you the script of finding unity with people who are unlike you in Christ. Let Scripture set your script before the world does. That's how you'll be transformed. Because before God's people ever had the liturgical calendar or Advent and Easter like even happened, again, God gave them liturgies and rituals and scripts introduced at the beginning of Scripture that all pointed forward to Jesus Christ. Like you read Leviticus and then read Hebrews right after that. Hebrews is such a powerful book in the New Testament because it looks back at all these rituals, all these methods of sacrifice and how each one and all the different roles of priest and prophet it all pointed forward to Jesus Christ. So again, you might think that at the end of Hebrews, it's like, well, we got Jesus now. So don't worry about any of that. But you read the last chapter of Hebrews and what does it close saying? As it comes to a close, it says in Hebrews 13, chapters 15, or excuse me, chapter 13, verses 15 and 16. It says, therefore, let us offer through Christ a continual sacrifice of praise to God, proclaiming our allegiance to his name. And don't forget to do good and share with those in need. These are the sacrifices that please God. Hebrews is saying, look, there's still sacrifices to be made. There's still a script, and it's continual. And it's saying, don't let your worship get compartmentalized, it should be continual. Doing good and sharing with those who need doesn't just happen here. That happens all through the week as we leave this place. I love the message version of verse 16 where it says, God takes particular pleasure in acts of worship, a different kind of sacrifice that take place in the kitchen and workplace and on the streets. 
all your rituals and scripts, all your little liturgies, all your habits, offer them to God as a sacrifice. But again, a focus on habits, a focus on efforts. The last thing I want this to be about tonight is that you're going to leave this place and think I'm going to do all these things to earn the love of God. It's not the point. It will miss the point entirely. Hebrews also contains one of my all-time favorite verses that makes sure we don't lose this perspective. It's Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, where it says, For by a single offering, Jesus has perfected for all time, speaking to our justification, those who are being sanctified, those who are being made holy. By one single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So we don't implement habits or do anything to earn justification. He's perfected us. That's the gospel. We have right standing with God because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. When we're washed in his blood, when we ask for forgiveness through the cross, God doesn't look at us and see our sin. He looks at us and sees Jesus' righteousness. That's our justification. That's our right standing with God. That's the gospel. But there's still an expectation to be sanctified. Many translations in Romans 12 call this our reasonable response to grow more like Christ and be transformed. But without little, little liturgies of worship in our day-to-day, we won't be transformed. We'll conform. You know, if I could have the worship team come up, communion is a ritual, a script, a liturgy that Jesus tells us to never stop doing because it reminds us of our script. It's a part of the liturgies of almost any church, right? Every church has a liturgy. We got planning center. We huddle up before service. We always leave room for the Holy Spirit to kick that and punt that plan, but we come here with a script for service. But we always take communion once a month. Why? Because we want to remember, as Jesus tells us to remember. Why does he tell us to do this and never stop? Because he knows otherwise, we'll forget. We can become forgetful because life has a way of making us disoriented and forgetful of the story we're in. The hectic pace, the to-do lists, the demands of our jobs, the pull we have towards acceptance and affirmation. We orient our lives around all of the above and we end up losing our liturgy, losing our script, and we lose the plot. That's why Jesus said, do this, take communion, break bread, drink the wine in remembrance of me. Jesus would say, I entered into the flesh in every seemingly mundane moment and became a part of our redemption story. So our mundane moments carry much meaning in light of that. They're a part of our little liturgies. Jesus sits at the heart of history and the story we live in. Everything we do should point to and worship him. So if we could stand, we're going to go into worship. And when we go into worship and the band starts playing, we can come down the center aisle and take the elements. They're going to put the tables out for us. But in scripture, right, when Paul talks in Corinthians about the act of taking communion, he says to reflect on your heart, reflect on where you are with God. So I would encourage you in these moments before we go into worship, before we take communion, reflect on your heart. Have you compartmentalized your worship to something that merely happens on a weekend? And that's compartmentalized your faith. It's fractured your faith. It's hurt your faith. For many of us, if if we do that, it cripples our witness. The the witness we're supposed to have during the week is every act and interaction is, is offered up to God. Man, that can make you lose your passion for evangelism so quick. I don't know where you may be tonight. Maybe tonight you've never entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ before. You don't have to be a member of City Life to take communion. 
We just ask that there would be some moment in your life where you said, Jesus, be Lord over my life. I want to accept your offer of grace and give you my life in response. It's our reasonable act of worship. If you've never done that tonight, let tonight be the night. I don't know how you need to respond to this. Maybe the Holy Spirit is, is putting his finger on something completely different tonight. But I pray that we would reflect on our hearts before taking communion. But Jesus, we remember again the story we're in. That it's centered not on us, it's centered on you. You're at the heart of the church. God, I pray that you be at the center of our lives. Thank you that grace and mercy, they're unending, Lord God. And where we feel like we're not okay tonight, it's okay that we're not okay. You extend grace in those moments. And then you bring us healing. God, I pray tonight that as we step back into worship, your Holy Spirit would take this word, your Holy Spirit would take these words we're about to sing, and God, realign our thoughts, our habits, our lives, God, with your script, your scripture, the truth of scripture. Jesus Christ be Lord, we worship you in this place. Let's enter into worship and take communion together.